This is a Rooster Teeth production. July 2nd, 1994. U.S. Air Flight 1016, a McDonnell Douglas DC-9 with 57 people on board, is seconds away from landing at Charlotte, North Carolina after a quick flight from Columbia, South Carolina. The weather is deteriorating as thunderstorms are popping up in the area around the airport. Just before landing, the crew decides to initiate a go-around procedure because the weather conditions have worsened more quickly than expected. The crew pushes the throttles forward and begins trying to climb out and to the right. The captain tells the first officer to nose the plane down because they are climbing too rapidly. Seconds later, the plane impacts the ground, still on airport property, killing 37 people. Did weather cause this plane to crash? Could this incident have been avoided? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. And people listening. And oh yeah, and 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 you, our fair listener. Hello <laughs> and welcome. Hopefully, you're fair. Yeah. <laughs> if they're listening to this podcast, they are. Yeah. We have the most the the most fair, distinguished audience in all the land, in all the podcast kingdom, <laughs> and as far as Spotify can see. Or, <laughs> or Apple, Apple Podcasts. Podcasts or whatever. Most of, most, of our, most of our listeners are on Spotify. A little bit of a peek behind the curtain. Oh. Yeah, Spotify really grew up out of nowhere, you know. Uh, any, yeah. Anyway, we, 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 we can talk about that some other time. <laughs> I, I, I love looking at the, the demographics where, where people download the podcast from. But that has nothing to do with US Air 1016. Speaking of which, uh, as always, I want to remind everyone to give us a follow on social media at BlackBoxDownPod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we post, you know, supplemental information on there and uh, you can go check it out and uh, see things. You know, if you want to see some pictures to go along with with uh, the podcast, you can you can see the things that we're talking about. I usually yeah. make notes of stuff to post on there. Yeah. Good pictures. Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes well, they're kind of sad. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Good yeah. pictures of bad things. Yeah, there you go. You got it. So U.S. Air Flight 1016, like I said, it was a passenger flight from Columbia, South Carolina to Charlotte, North Carolina back July 2nd, 1994. Supposed to be a really quick flight, you know, not not far at all. And uh, this flight was crewed by Captain Michael Russell Greenlee, who was 38 years old, who had 8,065 hours of flight time. And First Officer James Philip Hayes, who was 41 years old, who had 12,980 hours of flight time. And the airplane used was a 20-year-old McDonnell Douglas DC-9 that had 53,917 hours and 63,147 cycles. There were three flight attendants and 52 passengers on board. 52 passengers? Yeah, 52 passengers. So it's a, it's a DC-9. Uh, it's not like a huge plane, but it's not a tiny plane by any stretch of the imagination. A DC-9, it's not like a small regional plane, but it's yeah. not like a huge dual-aisle, you know, trans-oceanic passenger plane either. You know, it'd be, it'd be used for like domestic flights typically. Okay. So the flight crew was scheduled to fly several legs on the day of the accident. They started their day departing from Pittsburgh at 9.45 in the morning. They flew to New York, Charlotte, and then Columbia. Then after flying back to Charlotte, they're supposed to end their day flying to Memphis. So kind of like, you know, all around that area, just, you know, short flights here and there. And they spent about 40 minutes in Columbia before flight 1016 departed the gate on schedule at 6.10 p.m. So evening, you know, but summer, so it's still, still going to be light outside. Mm -hmm. The weather information provided to the flight crew from U.S. Air Dispatch indicated Conditions at Charlotte were similar to those encountered when the crew had departed there about an hour ago. So, you know, like we said, they were just there an hour earlier. Yeah. So, you know, weather hadn't changed too much, and it's not that far from where they are. The only noted exception was a report of scattered thunderstorms in the area. The flight to Charlotte was planned to be 35 minutes long, 
and they took off at 6.23 p.m. Four minutes after the departure, the crew contacted Charlotte Approach Control and advised they were at 12,000 feet and had the latest weather information. The controller replied telling him to expect runway 18 right and to descend to 10,000 feet. At 6.30, the first officer made a comment saying there was more rain than he thought there would be. The captain then radioed air traffic control and said they were going to deviate five degrees to the right of their path for just a little bit, and the controller approved this. At 6.32, the captain commented about rain just off the south edge of the airport. And just so, like, to kind of set your mental picture, uh-huh. the plane itself is south-southwest of the airport. You know, they're, they're flying north to get to the airport. So this rain is kind of, it's, it's on the way. It's kind of between them and the airport. Okay. A minute later, the captain contacted air traffic control and said, we're showing a little buildup here. We'd like to go about five degrees left. The controller asked how far ahead they were looking. The captain replied saying about 15 miles. The controller then said he was going to turn them before they get there, saying, I'm going to turn you at about five miles northbound. And the captain acknowledged this. So they're, you know, they're all air traffic. Well, I guess the, in this case, the, the pilots are looking at the weather, you know, try, requesting some small deviations to kind of try to get around the strong cells and mm-hmm. air traffic controls, you know, telling them that, you know, they're going to they're gonna move them around as well. And so they're, you know, they're coming into the airport Maybe not in the straightest line, but, you know, small deviations to get around bad weather. Yeah. And that's normal, right? Yeah, totally normal. Totally fine. At 634, the controller instructed the flight to fly a heading of 360 degrees and then instructed them to descend to 6,000 feet. So, like I said, they're flying north. If they're going 360, that's, you know, straight north. Mm -hmm. A minute later, the crew were instructed to turn 10 degrees to the right and descend to 2,300 feet. About this same time, the tower supervisor commented that it was quote, raining like hell at the south end of the airport. The controller then contacted flight 1016 again and said, I'll tell you what, they got some rain just south of the field, might be a little bit coming off north. Just expect ILS now, amend your altitude, maintain 3000. So telling them, you know, to expect the ILS, so they're not going to do a visual approach, they're going to use an an instrument landing and, you know, telling them to amend their altitude and maintain 3000. So they were at 2300. So it's telling them, you know, pop up a little bit, expect Mm -hmm. the ILS approach. You know, still nothing out of the ordinary, though. Pop up in case the wind is bad, right? I think I, I, I can't speculate on that. They might have to go a little higher just to intercept the glide slope as well. Okay. To come in on the ILS appropriately. Uh, I'm not entirely certain why they did that. But yeah, I mean, it could be, you know, give them a little more altitude in case there's wind, hit the glide slope appropriately, come in, you know, on a safe landing. Okay. The crew were then instructed to fly 090 degrees. And when they reached uh, Waypoint Sophie to turn 170 degrees, Actually, let me say that more clearly, <laughs> to turn to 170 degrees at 3,000 feet and cleared them for a 1-8 right ILS approach. Okay. They're going 360, going north, and they said to turn to 170? Well, first, they were told to fly 90, so make a right turn to fly east, and then they were told to fly 170, so they make another right turn to 170. Okay. So essentially south. So you're right. They did essentially go from flying north to flying south because they're turning back around. You know, they want to hit... Runway 18, they're flying into the wind. Yeah. So they kind of got to fly past the airport and then fly south in order to uh, line up on the 18 right ILS approach. So as the flight was on their base leg, and the base leg is like when you're perpendicular to the runway right before you turn on your final turn. So it's like right before they turn final, that's called the base leg. Okay. So they're on their base leg. They made visual contact with the airport, and the captain made a comment saying, looks like it's sitting right on the, and it's kind of inaudible. And he's talking about the rain, most likely. Oh, okay. 
Like sitting right on the runway, Maybe possibly? Right on the runway. Yeah, that could that could be what he was saying, but you know, the report states that it wasn't audible. But okay. he's most likely saying the airport or that the rain's sitting right on the runway. Maybe right on the airport. Who knows? During this period of time, there was another US air flight on the ground that was about to depart. And this flight said to a controller, looks like we've got a storm right on top of the field here, with the controller responding affirmative. This other flight that's on the ground delayed their departure. The crew of 1016 made a plan to bail to the right if they had to. So they're kind of talking about if they have a missed approach. Mm. Uh, and if they're going to do a go around, yeah, they're going to climb and then they said bail to the right. Makes it sound really dramatic, but turn to the right. Yeah. <laughs> Not like jumping off the plane. No, they, yeah, it's like if this landing goes bad, we're both going out of your side. <laughs> no, no, this, uh, just turn to the right. Just a, a little, little bit of drama there. At 639, the flight was cleared to land following another plane that was on short final. They were also told that the previous arrival happened about four minutes earlier and reported a smooth ride all the way down. However, the captain responded with, appreciate the pirate from that guy in front of us. He mistook that pilot report from the plane on short final, not the one that had landed four minutes before. Pirep is uh, short for pilot report. It's like when mm. pilots tell other pilots, you know, what the conditions are. So he misunderstood, the, the captain or the pilot, I should say, of 1016 misunderstood what was going on here. A plane that had landed four minutes earlier said it was smooth, and 1016 thought that it was the plane right in front of him that said that. Oh. So four minutes can, you know, you normally you think like, oh, how much can change in four minutes? Well, a lot. <laughs> Especially mm. when there's a thunderstorm or there's a storm going on right at that moment, the weather can deteriorate rather quickly. And, you know, the captain for 1016 thought it was a plane in front of him saying things were smooth. It's dead. It was one that had landed a couple minutes earlier. And how did he confuse them? I don't know. Maybe he's just, you know, wasn't... Again, speculation, maybe he wasn't entirely paying attention to who made the report. You know, he's, he's about a land. There's a lot going mm -hmm. on. Maybe he thought it was one plane and it turned out it was the other one. It happens because okay. it's not like it's a written down official report. You know, it's yeah. more like, you know, pilot comes on the radio and, and says something. Okay. At 640, the first officer made a comment saying the edge of the rain is laying on their side of the airport. At this time, another tower controller, the east controller, advised to a Boeing 737 sitting on runway 18 left that the aircraft that departed ahead of them reported a smooth ride. And then that Boeing 737 was cleared for takeoff as well. The crew of 1016 were then advised by the West controller that the wind was showing 100 at 19 knots, but it quickly amended it to 21 knots. So at 100, that's almost a direct crosswind because they're landing on runway 18, which is 180 degrees, and the wind is coming from 100, which is almost perpendicular to the runway. It's 80 degrees offset. Okay. So that's like 21 knots of wind pushing them perpendicular off the runway. So that's a pretty, that's significant crosswind to take into account for. Mm -hmm. A minute later, the West controller then advised the crew of a wind shear alert of 190 at 13 knots. And if you hear that, like 190, that's 90 degrees offset. Now, Instead of coming from the left, that's, you know, a 13-knot wind coming from the right now. So initially, they're told there's a 19 to 21-knot wind from their left, and then they're advised wind shear. Now you're getting a 13-knot wind from your right. So a wind shear is just when the wind changes direction very quickly. Okay. Which can be dangerous because typically when you're landing and taking off, you want to take off and land into the wind, like directly into the mm -hmm. wind. And when you're coming into land, you're going, you're really low to the ground and you're going slow. So a quick change in the wind can really mess you up. Yeah. Because it's all micro adjustments at that point, right? Yes. And when you're coming in like this with a crosswind, typically you want, you turn your ailerons into the wind 
and then you <laughs> you uh, keep your course with the rudder. So it's like when the wind shear changes like that, it you know you have to very quickly go from one direction to another. Mm. At the same time, the east. So remember, I said that there was the west controller who advised them about the wind shear. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes at, at airports, they can have different controllers for different directions of flights. That makes sense. Yeah, just you know, want to divvy up the work. So, like I said, the west controller advised them of the wind shear, and at the same time, this is going on. The east controller radioed out on a different frequency. Attention, all aircraft. Wind shear alert. The surface wind one zero zero at twenty knots. Northeast boundary wind 190 at 16 knots. So it's kind of letting people know there's a wind shear. And when you're coming in, the wind is approaching from different directions at different speeds. But like I said, this is on a different frequency because this is a different controller who's saying this. But it's just, it should be the same information regardless of what direction you're approaching, right? Because they use the 190, which is like, that's that means it's coming from... That's a universal regardless, like a northeast-southwest thing, right? Correct, correct. And, and that, when you said that, I realized I misspoke on something uh, just a second ago. So I want to I want to make a quick correction <laughs> now that I'm okay. looking at all the numbers in front of me. I said that, you know, when the wind is coming from one zero zero, it's directly from their left. They're landing on runway one eight. So when the wind shifts to one nine zero, that's not coming from their right. That's what I said. It's actually coming from almost straight on. OK, because they're landing one eight zero and the wind sh- was shifting to one nine zero. That's just 10 degrees offset. So it's pretty much straight. And that's good. Yeah, that's good. That's what you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am curious, this isn't off topic, but I had never thought about how the different radio towers divvy up the landings, but the fact they do it by direction is cool versus like, I always just assumed it was like a radius around the tower. I don't know. Yeah. If you look at the charts normally, if you look like a a sectional chart for around an airport, it'll show you the different frequencies in different directions around Mm -hmm. uh, an airport. If they do that, you know, some small airports might not do that. But like here in Austin, for example, where we are, Mm -hmm. it's divided up depending on what direction you're approaching from. That's cool. Do you ever have to, are you ever like talking with one person and then like, oh, I'm switching where I'm landing, I got to talk to another person. Well, no, it's the direction you're approaching from. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, not the direction inherently you're landing from, but what's... Yeah, so it's like if you're approaching Austin from the east, you contact one frequency. If you approach from the west, it. it's a different one. Yeah. That's cool. They, they may hand you off, you know, if you mm-hmm. come in on from one direction, you know, they'll talk to you. They may talk to you for a bit and say, you know what, you know, contact approach on, and they'll just give you a different frequency and you just swap mm-hmm. over. Okay. Anyway, I didn't deal. mean to derail, no. but... That's, that's, that's a good that's a good question yeah it's a it's a it's probably something a lot of people don't think about okay yeah anyway getting back to this incident at hand so like I said at 640 they made a comment about the rain laying on their side of the airport and then two minutes later at 642 the first officer commented there's 10 knots right there the captain said okay you're plus 20 take it around go to the right over the next 20 seconds the following was recorded by the cockpit voice recorder the captain contacts air traffic control and says U.S. Air 1016 on the go, which means they're going to initiate a go around. They're, you know, they're going to circle and try it again. Then the captain says to the first officer, max power. First officer says, yeah, max power. Air traffic control replies and says, U.S. Air 1016, understand you're on the go, sir. Fly runway heading, climb and maintain 3,000. So telling them, stay on that 180 heading and then climb up to 3,000 feet. First officer says, flaps to 15. Mm -hmm. The captain says, down, push it down. And then the captain replies to air traffic control, up to three, we're taking a right turn. Air traffic control says, U.S. Air 1016, understand you're turning right. Uh, And at this point, the ground proximity warning system terrain alert goes off, followed by an unidentified voice saying power. Then the stick shaker begins and ends, followed by the sound of the ground impact. What happened? 
Let me read this, this next part, and then I'm going to go back. I, 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 I want to highlight something that was okay. said in there. The airplane hit the ground within the airport grounds, but crashed through the airport fence and impacted several trees. It then started to break apart into four major sections while skidding down a residential street, damaging power and telephone lines, a oh. car, and a house. Dang. Uh, a post-crash fire also ignited. 37 passengers were killed in the accident, and there were 16 serious injuries and four minor injuries. So... Going over what, you know, the, this, this exchange, the, you know, the cockpit voice recorder exchange, there's one thing that stands out that's really strange. You know, they're, they're, they decide they're going to do a go around. They decide, you know, they're going to climb and go to the right. The question you should be asking at this point when, you know, looking at this exchange is, why did the captain say down, push it down? Like they're already really low to the ground. Why is mm-hmm. he trying to push the stick down? You know, they're, they're trying to climb out. Yeah. Were they stalling? So we're going to, I don't want to spoil it yet. We're, we're going to get into it. But that, that's the puzzling one right there. That's mm-hmm. the, the big question mark. So we're going we're gonna to talk about, you know, what's going on there. You teased, Gus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just like, I'm just to highlight, like when you, when you hear something like yeah. where, where the unusual uh, part of the conversation is. For most of us, learning a second language in high school or college wasn't exactly a high point in our academic careers. I know just about everyone took a class of some kind in high school and they have no proficiency. They don't remember anything about it. It's difficult to do. Maybe you're not as invested when you're younger. Uh, I took Latin. I, I, I don't know why I did that. And I can't remember anything about Latin. I can conjugate a verb, maybe. <laughs> well, anyway, now thanks to Babbel, the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions, there's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. Whether you'll be traveling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons you'll actually use in the real world. I grew up speaking Spanish uh, at home, never, you know, took like formal lessons or anything. So I decided to uh, start like trying to relearn things using Babbel, like learn things the correct way, uh, actually structured. And it's been amazing. Like things that I've been saying for years, I realized, oh, I'm wrong. Uh, So it's been really handy to correct bad habits that I've learned. Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Other language learning apps use AI for their lessons plans. But Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Their teaching methods have been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. There's so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to the lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. So start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of just three. Go to babbel.com, use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code BLACKBOXDOWN. Babbel, language for life. Did you know 90% of coffee from the grocery store is actually stale? Yeah, you heard that right. The coffee you think you love needs an upgrade. Instead of rebuying the same old, same old, let Trade Coffee send you something freshly roasted, that you're literally guaranteed to love. Trade sells the freshest roasted and ethically sourced beans from America's best independent roasters. They ship free to you as often as you like, whole or ground. Whether you're a coffee nerd or you just want a better daily cup, Trade's coffee experts taste test over 400 roasts and use technology to match you to your ideal coffee based on your preferences and brewing method. Take a coffee quiz to get started. Trade coffee guarantees you'll love your first bag or they'll replace it for free. Trade has been featured by the New York Times, Wired, GQ, and has delivered over 5 million bags of coffee. Subscription is no hassle. You can skip shipments, change your frequency, cancel anytime. Uh, I took the coffee quiz myself, 
and uh, it's really short and it just asks you a couple of basic questions about the way you drink coffee, what your preferences are, and they'll match you with a specific roast, send it to you. I loved it. It's absolutely amazing. You know, for me, I use a, a little espresso machine, so they made sure they sent me the right kind. Uh, I don't have a grinder. I know, I know. Uh, so they sent me pre-ground stuff. Amazing. It tastes great. Way better than buying it at the store. For our listeners right now, Trade Coffee is offering a total of $20 off your first three bags when you go to drinktrade.com slash blackboxdown. To get started, take their quiz at drinktrade.com slash blackboxdown. Start your journey to the perfect cup. That's drinktrade.com slash blackboxdown for $20 off your first three bags. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show with an investigative journalist that uncovers how a fraudster siphoned off billions of dollars. Jolo was a kid from an island called Penang. He was sent by his father to Harrow in the UK. And then he went to Wharton in America. It was almost like a family con that was going on here. From a very young age, they wanted their son to network. Very, very, very skilled networker. His childhood friend is a son of this character called Najib Razak. And Najib Razak becomes prime minister of Malaysia. And it sets him up as this sort of eminence grise or a Svengali type figure behind the prime minister. He just took all the money out of a sovereign wealth fund overnight. You know, we think he stole at least $6 billion, but Jola was an imposter. People still question who was this guy? Where did he come from? Why is he splashing all this money around? To get a deep dive into the shadowy world of corruption, money laundering, and embezzling by the shadiest shysters among the elite, check out episode 602 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. So in post-accident interviews, several uh-huh. passengers said they felt the flight get bumpy due to the storm. Mm-hmm. One passenger said the weather was pouring down, super rainy and turbulent, and that they hit an air pocket and dropped like riding on a roller coaster. Oh. He then heard the engines rev up before the plane began to climb, and that he saw the trees before the ground impact. Another passenger, who was a military air traffic controller, said he saw the runway at a 45-degree angle to his position on the left side of the airplane. The flight attendant said they sensed something was wrong when they felt the airplane pitch upward for the go-around and then felt the airplane sinking. The investigation into this incident was carried out by the NTSB. They determined that the crew unknowingly entered into a microburst. Oh, microburst. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about microbursts before. I think we even posted one on social media a couple months ago. Uh, I'll see if I can find another example of a microburst and post it again. But a microburst is just essentially think about like a column of air or a column of wind coming from the sky straight down to the ground. And then when it hits the ground, it kind of like fans out. So if you fly into a microburst, you first experience a headwind. It kind of pops you up. Then there's a downdraft that pushes the plane down. And then there's a tailwind, which can be really dangerous because that decreases your airspeed. And this microburst, of course, you know, was the result of convective activity that was centered near the east side of runway 18, right? Like we said, there was this storm that was going on. Mm-hmm. And that also explains why these wind shears were happening at the same time, because with the microburst, you know, the winds are going to be changing directions quite a bit. This microburst was determined to be a little more than two miles in diameter and capable of producing a rainfall rate of 10 inches per hour. The total wind change near the ground was determined to be about 75 knots. Mm. At about 300 feet, the winds were 86 knots. And it's pushing down. Well, yeah, initially it pushes down, but then once it hits the ground, the wind kind of like curls out. And that's why you'll get like a headwind and a tailwind. So it kind of goes in in all directions. How can I put it? Imagine like if you have like a, a glass of water or something, right? And you pour it onto, and it hit, you pour it down onto your table or the counter, you know, it hits it and then it splashes off to the sides. Yeah. That's the same thing that's happening with the wind. It comes straight down and then curls out to the sides. It's a good analogy. Yeah. Well, when, you know, you think about it, I think we've said this before, air is mm-hmm. a lot like 
a liquid. You know, just think about it in terms of that. It really, it'll really help you out. Mm-hmm. The strongest downward vertical winds below 300 feet were calculated to be 10 to 20 feet per second. And the airplane encountered a wind shear seven to eight seconds after the missed approach was initiated. Computations indicate that during the final descent, the wind along the flight path changed significantly. The computations revealed that the wind shifted from a headwind of about 35 knots, which is what you want, to a tailwind of about 26 knots in 15 seconds. So that's a huge change. Let's say you're coming into land, okay? Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to use, let's say you're landing, your landing speed is 100 knots, which is too low for them. That's, that's not what they were doing, but I'm just going to use 100 because it makes the math easy. Okay. So if, if you're landing and it says your airspeed is 100 knots and you have a headwind of 35 knots... When that changes to a tailwind of 26 knots, you end up losing 61 knots of airspeed. Which is a lot if which you're only going 100. Which, right. But you would be going, what, like 170, 60? On a DC-9, I don't know. There's probably lower. That. If I had to guess on a DC-9, it's probably like 140 knots. Okay. But still, that's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's quite a bit. So yeah, the landing speed of a DC-9 is about 130 knots. So, you know, if you lose... 61 knots on that then you're Mm -hmm. you're down to what like 79 knots pretty quickly which is too slow so the vertical velocity component of the wind field was also examined it was determined that the vertical wind velocity increased from about 10 feet per second down to 25 feet per second down and increased further to 30 feet per second down as the airplane attained its maximum altitude and transitioned into a descent so the air shift or the wind shifts from a headwind to a tailwind. And then on top of that, it's also pushing down on them. When it switches from a headwind to a tailwind, it's robbing them of lift on the wings. And then on top of that, it's blowing straight down on them too. So they're losing lift and getting blown down into the ground. Yeah. Terrible combination, especially when you're that low to the ground. You have no altitude you can trade off. Mm-hmm. I, I read that, you know, when they were examining this microburst, to see, you know, how severe it was, you know, after, you know, after the fact, then go over all the data. It's, it's especially, it, it's hard to determine this stuff in the moment, especially back in 1994. They really didn't have as advanced of radar as we have now, as advanced capabilities. But when, you know, they compiled all the data in researching this incident, the researchers realized that this was in the top 1% of all microbursts that had been oh. recorded. It was bad. Dang. And they're already rare. Right. right, it's I already, mean, already yeah. It, it's already very uncommon, and they this was just such a severe incident that it was really difficult to fight. So the NTSB believes that a combination of air traffic control procedures and a breakdown of communications within the Charlotte Tower prevented the flight crew from being provided critical information about adverse weather that developed over the airport. If the flight crew had been provided information regarding the severe weather in the terminal area. They might have abandoned the approach sooner or might not have even initiated the approach. Mm-hmm. The Charlotte approach controller did not provide the pilots with critical information about precipitation that was identified and depicted on the radar. The precipitation was at a level three intensity, which the National Weather Service classifies as heavy precipitation. And the controller simply advised that they may get some rain just south of the field. And yeah. this is not what was depicted and was not proper phraseology that should have been used. And he thought that the... the- the report from that other pilot, he he was like, oh, it doesn't seem that bad. Yeah, that yeah, and that, that was the the pilot who was coming into land. And like we've talked about before, these microbursts can develop very quickly and then dissipate very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, before when I said, you know, four minutes doesn't seem that bad, but a lot can change. Well, yeah, and then we see what can change here. You know, one plane comes in and lands fine, then a microburst occurs, and four minutes later, another plane can't land. Yeah. 
The manager of the Advanced Systems Branch of the FAA's Air Traffic Division stated that the controllers in general are absolutely not taught to interpret information detected by the radar. Mm-hmm. Also, the Air Traffic Controller Handbook states, issue pertinent information on observed, reported weather, or chaff areas. But different controllers might have different ideas on what pertinent information means. So there's a little bit of ambiguity there. Like, what is their responsibility to say it? How do you interpret this? So, they, you know, the they're trying, they're just trying to emphasize the fact that while the report does put blame on the air traffic controller, the air traffic division says, well, you know, it's, it really might not have been their responsibility. Okay. When the flight was 7.5 miles from the runway, the local West controller and a departing U.S. air flight had a conversation about the weather being right on top of the airport. And the local West controller did not relay this information to the crew of flight 1016 because the weather was not impacting runway 18 right and another airplane had circled from runway 23 and landed on runway 18 right in front of U.S. Air 1016. While this may be the controller exercising his discretion not to disseminate weather information, the NTSB believes it would have been prudent for the controller to issue the information regarding deteriorating weather conditions to the crew. So again, they're like, the controller says, and another plane circled and landed just in front of them. Maybe, you know, he, he felt he didn't have to relay the rest of this information, but the NTSB is saying, it probably would have been a good idea to do that anyway. Yeah. Also, the NTSB determined that the wind shear alert to flight 1016 was not done in a timely manner. The alert went off for the local east, local west, and ground controllers at 640 when the plane was four and a half miles away. Transcripts show that the ground controller was aware of this. However, this information was not relayed to the crew of 1016 as required by the air traffic controller handbook. The NTSB also concluded that the local west controller should have recognized the rapidly deteriorating weather conditions since he stated he could not see the approach end of runway 18 right, since visibility was reduced from 6 miles to 1 mile. According to the handbook, he's supposed to alert flight crews of visibility of 1 mile or less, but he did not. Mm. Also, the weather information for the airport had updated during the approach, but it was not broadcasting yet, and the crew were not informed of the new weather update. So maybe he should also have told them, hey, there's new weather, and just given them a quick update about it. Also, I'm sure, you know, since the visibility went from six miles to one mile and he's supposed to alert at one mile, I'm sure he could have said, you know, well, it wasn't below the minimum yet. So it is, it, there's a, it's like a lot of things were just on the line or just yeah. ambiguous enough to not get shared. But in hindsight, yes, absolutely. All of this stuff should be shared. shared. And, you know, just for overall safety's sake, probably should be shared anyway. Even if there was no incident here, this is still stuff that should be shared. It doesn't hurt to give more information. Right. Well, you know, you don't want you you, do, you don't want to no. overload the crew, but this is stuff that this is information they could use. This is like important information. Right. Not overload. Hey, b- by the way, yeah. You know. Where are you going to go eat dinner later? <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> I was going to say like what about the baseball, but I don't know anything about sports, so <laughs> I couldn't come up with a good <laughs> small talk. That's okay, Chris. They the, they're in, in North Carolina. They probably be talking about uh college basketball. Mm, oh, yeah, you don't know, know about that. that either. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> So the NTSB believes that based on the weather conditions and their adverse effect on aircraft performance, the flight crew should have completely avoided the convective activity. However, because they did not abandon the approach earlier, the performance of the airplane during the wind shear encounter was analyzed to determine if it was capable of successfully flying through the wind shear encounter, assuming optimum pilot technique. Simulations revealed that the airplane could have escaped the wind shear encounter if several crew actions had been performed. Ooh, so it was possible. Possible. But again, they're, they're saying like, Optimum pilot technique. So knowing and reacting instantly versus like what's going on, you know, versus even taking a couple of seconds to analyze Mm -hmm, and react. mm -hmm. First, the power was advanced by the first officer to an EPR setting of about 1.82. 
However, the captain did not trim to the target EPR of 1.93. So again, just like slightly inoptimal. That's kind of hard to to digest. So I guess they're saying like the trim settings and the throttle could have been advanced a little more optimally to uh, get the best climb and the best lift out of the wings. Second, the flight data recorder indicated a positive rate of climb had been established. However, the landing gear was not retracted. And lastly, the pitch attitude of the airplane was not maintained at or near the target of 15 degrees nose up. And of course, we know like when the landing gear is down, it increases drag. So that kind of like robs you of some lift. Lowering the nose to five degrees below the horizon was the most significant factor that prevented the escape. Remember, I commented that he said down, push it down. Uh It says he, you know, what I just read was that the target should have been 15 degrees nose up. However, they were they were pushing down. The evidence indicates that the pitch trim had not been changed subsequent to the missed approach. Therefore, the first officer would have had to continue to increase back pressure on the control column as the airplane slowed to maintain a constant pitch attitude. Therefore, control column forces might also have affected subsequent events during the missed approach maneuver. Specifically, when the captain directed the first officer to push it down, the first officer did not have to push forward in the control column. Instead, he just had to relieve some back pressure. Oh. Right, so it's like he's pulling back. It's like he just had to pull back less. Yeah, not actually push it down. Right. So when the captain instructed the first officer to push it down, the pitch attitude transitioned from 15 degrees nose up to five degrees nose down over seven seconds. So instead of, you know, being nose up to climb, they ended up going nose down, you know, Mm -hmm. over this course of seven seconds. The captain testified he was not disoriented in this moment, but nevertheless... So he was okay. Oh, yeah. The captain and the the first officer both survived the incident. The captain testified he was not disoriented in this moment, but nevertheless, the NTSB believes that since neither crew member reported seeing the airspeed decreasing prior to the command, the captain might have been adversely affected by sensory illusion, which could have prompted his ordering to lower the nose to correct perceived excessive nose-high sensation. The NTSB believes the first officer should have used good CRM in this moment to challenge the inappropriate command. So I want to go over something that I, I just read right there. Mm-hmm. They're talking about the sensory illusion. You know, the captain said he was not disoriented, but the NTSB thinks he might have been affected by the sensory illusion, which is why he, maybe he said nose down. There's this sensation, uh, this illusion that can affect you. It's called a somatogravic illusion, and it can cause a pilot or can cause a person to think that they're in like a, a nose up or a pitch up sensation when they really aren't. And I'm going to try to explain it a little bit again. Mm-hmm. Think about, I'm going to use a glass of water again as an analogy. Think about okay. a glass of water, right? All right. And let's say you put a glass of water down on uh, your, your kitchen counter. And then let's say it's, say it's like half full or half empty, right? And then you push it down full. the cap. We'll say it's half full. We're positive here. <laughs> then let's say you like slide it down the counter. You know how when you push that glass, the liquid like shifts and goes like in the backwards direction or, mm-hmm. you know, because that's where it was. And then... When it stops, you know, it returns to level. If you think about it, if you picked up that glass and you tilted it, you could also get the liquid to move back in that same motion, right? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you know, it when you shove it or when you push it down the counter, it kind of moves backwards against the back edge of the glass. Yeah. But if you were to pick it up and kind of like tip it, you could also make it you know, go like if you were taking a drink, you know how yeah. it goes up to one side. The same thing happens in your inner ear. There's fluid in your inner ear. Oh. So if you think about it, it's like if you look up, you know, the fluid in your inner ear moves back. It's like tilting the glass. But also the same thing can happen if you're in a car or in a plane and you start accelerating very quickly. 
that fluid mm. moves back and your inner ear thinks that maybe you're looking up. So what the NTSB is saying here is that maybe because they started accelerating, the captain thought that they were pitching up too far. And that's why he said nose down. Mm. But in reality, they weren't pitching up too far. They were pitching up the appropriate amount. Mm. There's the ear juice. <laughs> right. The ear <laughs> juice uh, is, is not reliable. Because if you think about it, like all of our senses, everything that, you know, we use to perceive the world, you know, we never evolved in airplanes. Yeah, <laughs> like they're made used, for like to, being on the ground. Right. We're used to, we're made for being on the ground at relatively slow speeds. Like that kind of rapid acceleration uh, doesn't make sense to our inner ear. We, you know, we don't know how to perceive it. So that's what the NTSB is saying. It could be that because of the acceleration, the captain thought they were pitching up too quickly when in reality they weren't. It was just acceleration acting on the inner ear juice. Mm. Anyway, I thought that was um, that was yeah. kind of like a cool illusion to think about. Yeah, and scary. <laughs> <laughs> scary, yeah. That's why, you know, when you're flying like this, uh, or in this case, you know, with poor visibility and not being able to see very well, you got to look at the instruments to verify what's going on. Yeah, you can, like can't trust your senses so much. Yeah, even like, you know, I've, you know I'm, I'm working on getting my pilot's license, even doing like some training. Sometimes, you know, you have to wear like goggles that obscure your vision so you only look at your instruments. Uh, you know, or if you know you're flying through a cloud as part of that instrument training, uh, I, I've had it happen where I think, "Oh my God, we're pitching up way too much," and then I look at the instruments like, "Oh no, we're we're even, or we're level, or we're, we're even going down a little bit." That's scary. It, it's really it's really crazy. Anyway, back to back to US Air 1016. Based on the information that was available to the flight crew, it was evident that they did not immediately recognize the microburst encounter, and they did not initiate immediate corrective actions. They initiated the approach into an area of convective activity that, based on information from other sources, was not considered to be threatening. The crew's decision to continue the approach, even though the weather conditions were rapidly deteriorating, might have been influenced by the lack of significant weather information or reported information that led the crew to believe the weather conditions still did not pose a threat to the completion of the flight. On top of that, the airplane has a wind shear alert system on board, but the software was inadequate and was not able to warn the crew early enough for them to make a better go-around decision. It turns out that the software logic delayed warnings while flaps were in transition. So there was, <laughs> it's just like a bug in the software where if the flaps were changing from one setting to another, mm -hmm. the wind shear alerts were delayed. That's an important bug, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's a big problem. Again, and I know this, like a lot of this stuff sounds scary, but the wind shear alerts, even the weather radar, everything on modern planes is way better now. <laughs> like this kind of stuff shouldn't happen anymore. You know, we, we have a lot more technology on planes. We have a lot more technology on the ground. Alerts are a lot more, are received a lot earlier, I should say. So this kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. And, you know, we found out these kinds of bugs in software mm -hmm. and they've been rectified since then. So of course, you know, there were some findings uh, as a result of this incident. And there was no evidence of a mechanical malfunction or failure of the airplane structure, flight control systems, or power plants that would have contributed to this accident. So just saying, the plane was fine. Everything with the plane hardware was absolutely working. Hmm. The crew of Flight 1016 was not provided the updated weather information broadcast in the ATIS Information Zulu as requested by the ATC handbook. The weather information reflected thunderstorms and rain shower activity. So like I said, you know, when they were coming in on their approach, the weather information had updated and they just weren't told and they weren't given the updated weather information. The terminal Doppler weather radar had not been installed at Charlotte Douglas International Airport as scheduled. The accuracy of the terminal Doppler weather radar would have provided the controllers with definitive information about the severity of the weather, and the timely issuance of that information would have been beneficial to the crew of Flight 1016. And Doppler radar is in a lot more airports nowadays. This is, this is the time it was rolling out 
and it just hadn't been installed mm. yet at, at this airport. Well, I think we talked about Doppler yeah. weather radar before when we did that uh, flight in Dallas. And didn't, yeah, yeah, and Doppler is like basically the thing that really helps you figure out if there's going to be a, 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 a microburst. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it really helps with microburst and wind shear detection. Inadequate controller procedures and a breakdown of communication in the Charlotte Air Traffic Control Tower prevented the crew of Flight 1016 from receiving additional critical information about adverse weather conditions over the airport and along the approach path to the runway. The flight crew's decision to continue the approach into an area of adverse weather may have been influenced by weather information from the crews of preceding flights that had flown the flight path to runway 18 right previously. Like I said, even four minutes before the flight Mm -hmm. that landed said, oh yeah, smooth landing, no problem. But, you know, this microburst popped up real quick and changed those conditions. The thunderstorm over the airport produced a microburst that flight 1016 penetrated while on its approach to runway 18 right. The horizontal wind shear calculated for the microburst was as much as 86 knots. However, flight 1016 encountered a wind shear computed to be 61 knots over a period of 15 seconds. An inadequate computer software design in the airplane's onboard wind shear detection system prevented the flight crew from receiving a more timely wind shear alert. That's what we talked about. There was that bug in the software. Mm -hmm. Unaware that they had penetrated the first part of the microburst, the captain commanded the first officer to execute a standard missed approach instead of a wind shear escape procedure. Oh, yeah. And es- escape is is a, is a strong word. <laughs> well, also, you know, knowing that they were in a wind shear would have helped them know yeah. to be more aggressive with it in order to get out. Like that Dallas one that we talked about, he knew they were going into a wind shear. Yeah, he, they knew like, that it was coming Oh, up. you're, mm-hmm. you're going to have to pull up, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, the, if I remember right, the captain even told the first officer exactly what was going to happen. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then, like, they knew going into it. Uh, this time, they, they they were unaware until it was too late. Which says a lot. Like, the other in the Dallas one, they knew what they were getting into, and they still, yeah, had an accident. St- yeah, they, st- they still this, had the incident. They didn't even know. Right. And this microburst was way worse uh, mm. on paper. The first officer initially rotated the airplane to the proper 15 degrees nose-up attitude during the missed approach. However, the thrust was set below the standard go-around EPR limit of 1.93, and the pitch attitude was reduced to 5 degrees nose down before the flight crew recognized the dangerous situation. So they didn't give it as much power as they could have, and then they ended up nosing down, which is what led to this incident. According to the performance simulations, the airplane could have overcome the wind shear encounter if the pitch attitude of 15 degrees nose up had been maintained and the thrust had been set to 1.93 and the landing gear had been retracted on schedule. So again, if they had given it, the appropriate power, if they retracted their gear and maintained 15 degrees nose up, this wouldn't have been an issue. Yeah. The NTSB determines that the probable cause of the accident were, one, the flight crew's decision to continue an approach into severe convective activity that was conducive to a microburst. Mm-hmm. Two, the flight crew's failure to recognize the wind shear situation in a timely manner. Three, the flight crew's failure to establish and maintain the proper airplane attitude and thrust setting necessary to escape the wind shear. And four, the lack of real-time adverse weather and wind shear hazard information dissemination from air traffic control, all of which led to an encounter with and failure to escape from a microburst-induced wind shear that was produced by a rapidly developing thunderstorm located at the approach end of runway 18 right. So, uh, like, on top of all of these things, the microburst was right at the worst possible place to, it was right at the approach end of this runway. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's bad luck on top of, some bad decisions that were made. It just all compounded to cause this incident. Contributing to the accident were, one, the lack of air traffic control procedures that would have required the controllers to display an issue, radar weather information to the pilots of Flight 1016. Two, 
the Charlotte Tower supervisor's failure to properly advise and ensure that all controllers were aware of and reporting the reduction in visibility and runway visible range value information and the low-level wind shear alerts that had occurred in multiple quadrants. Three, the inadequate remedial actions by U.S. Air to ensure adherence to standard operating procedures. And four, the inadequate software logic in the airplane's wind shear warning system that did not provide an alert upon entry into wind shear. It's a lot. It's a lot, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's the probable cause, what's four probable causes and four contributing causes. It's, mm-hmm. there's a lot that goes on. And that, again, you know, it's easy to look at this and say, oh, this was a, an accident caused by a wind shear or by a microburst. And then you're like, well, they should have been able to escape it. It's like, let's break it down. It's actually all these other little things that add up that lead mm-hmm. to this. You know, this was avoidable. They either by calling a missed approach earlier or by doing the appropriate escape procedure. Uh, it's just this breakdown in communication that led to this being an incident. So, of course, you know, there's some recommendations as a result of this. Mm-hmm. Ensure that broadcasts are promptly updated whenever conditions conductive to thunderstorms are observed. These conditions would include, but are not limited to, wind shear, lightning, and rain. Additionally, require that controllers issue these items until the information is broadcast on the ATIS and the pilots have acknowledged receipt of the information. So, just saying, like, if the weather information is updated and it hasn't made it out to the pilots yet... Via ATIS, the controllers have to tell them that there's updated information. Tell them, or you know, once it's on the ATIS, tell them to get it from the ATIS. Yeah. And we've talked about ATIS before. It's just like the automated broadcast of weather and airport information. Require the tower supervisor to notify tower and radar approach control facility personnel of the deterioration of prevailing visibility to less than three miles. Additionally, require that controllers issue these items until the information is broadcast on the ATIS and the pilots have acknowledged the receipt of the information. So I think what we said earlier was they were initially responsible to tell pilots when the visibility went below one mile. They changed mm-hmm. it here. The recommendation is to tell them when it's less than three miles. Okay. And make sure that they give the pilots the information again until it's being broadcast on the ATIS and the pilots have that information. Re-emphasize in pilot training and flight checking the cues available for identifying convective activity and recognize associated microburst wind shears and provide additional guidance to pilots on operational decisions involving flight into terminal areas where convective activity is present. Again, just identify these things and give the information more promptly. Issue a flight standards information bulletin to operators of aircraft equipped with a Honeywell standard wind shear system to assure that flight crew members of those airplanes are advised of the current limitations of the system that delays wind shear warnings to flight crew members when flaps are in transition. So this is like, let people know who are using this, that there's a bug, that mm-hmm. when their flaps are moving, they may get a delay in their wind shear alerts. Yeah. And then the last one here, conduct a review of the certification of the Honeywell standard wind shear system with emphasis on performance while the flaps are in transition and require that the system be modified to ensure prompt warning activation under those circumstances. So... They went ahead, of course, and reviewed that system and performed updates on it to make sure that this was not a software bug that would occur again. That's good. Yeah, they fixed software. Yeah, of course, like fix the issues that pop up. You know, like we mentioned, this is the second incident that we've talked about with microbursts. And mm-hmm. I feel like these can be, for our listeners, these can be the scariest ones to listen to, right? Because it seems like, what can you do about it? It's just the wind changes rapidly. You know, pilots in this case, you know, they might not know that there's a wind shear and you're low to the ground, you know, and like we said, this is the second time it's led to a crash with fatalities. So I feel it's important to emphasize that there have been no wind shear accidents in the United States since this one. Oh, uh, wow. As far as like uh, dealing with like passenger planes and commercial aviation. So it's been what, 20, almost 28 years Whoa. now. That is the result of 
the things that we talked about in that previous episode and in this one. Doppler radar, you know, being able to do a better job predicting wind shears, better systems on planes that can see and alert pilots to this, these types of incidents. Mm-hmm. You know, the industry really took aggressive steps to try to prevent these accidents, and it's been very successful. You shouldn't have to worry about this anymore when you're flying on uh, a passenger plane. So, you know, if you're ever on a plane and, you know, you're coming into land and you have to, you know, do a go around to come in for a second landing, you can rest assured knowing that while it may be a little inconvenient, it might it was probably for the best <laughs> safety wise. Yeah. Uh, have you ever been on a go around or like a missed land, a missed approach uh, on any flight you've been I'm on? I'm sure I have. But previously to doing this podcast, I didn't probably didn't you pay n- you attention. You never thought about it? <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, hmm, you know, I'd probably be like asleep or, you know, reading or something. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully no one who listens ever thinks ever gets annoyed or mad at the crew for making a go around and having to do another approach because chances are it was for it was for the best overall safety wise. Yeah. So like we mentioned earlier, both the pilots actually survived this incident. And I'm surprised you didn't ask this question. Lots of times you ask what happened to the pilots. I probably was going to, but I was kind of like waiting to see, you know, (laughs) you probably preempted me there. But go ahead. Oh, I cut you off. That's (laughs) Well, I just hadn't I just hadn't gotten there yet. You hadn't gotten there. Okay. Both of these pilots actually continued flying. And, you know, US Air became US Airways, which then got, you know, absorbed into American Airlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they became American Airlines pilots after the merger in 2013. I don't know if they're still flying today. I couldn't answer that. You know, this was so long ago. They might have retired by now. This was 94. That was 28 years ago. They are most likely retired. Because they would be, at this point, they'd be... 66 and 69 years old so they'd be you know they're they're probably retired at this point but that's it that's u.s air flight 1016 just another one of those crazy incidents that with better information dissemination this incident most likely could have been entirely avoided and now it would be and yeah now you know this absolutely even if an air traffic controller didn't tell a pilot the onboard systems and the onboard radar would you know definitely alert about these uh, these types of problems to avoid. All right, well, uh, that's it for this episode. We'll be back again next week with another uh, another episode of Black Box Down for you. Yeah, and be sure to tell one friend about this podcast. I was going to say that. It's been a while since we've asked people to tell a friend. Yeah, if you know anyone who, who might be interested, I mean, podcasts really, really thrive on uh, word of mouth. So if you could tell a friend, either maybe post something on social media or share a little clip, uh, we'd really appreciate it. If, if you're listening... You can if you hit the little dot 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 little three ellipses but uh, vertically, you can do that and it'll hit share and you can do that and that'll actually directly share it to social media. Just a little make it easy tip, a little social media pro tip from yeah. Chris. All right, well thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back in next week. 